0: hello and welcome to another episode of dr j's american passages i'm dr j today's american passage is from herman melville's 1851 novel moby dick or the whale over the years i've occasionally been asked by the fellow sitting on the bar stool next to mine what i do when they find out they almost always want to talk about a book. And more often than all other books put together, the book they want to talk about is Moby Dick, read not for a class, but on their own. Moby Dick is a book one wants to talk about, but those who've read it often feel themselves to be one of those isolados Melville writes of, each alone and different in this world a feeling which reaches its apogee in the passage I've chosen for today in the character of Pip. Though I taught a course that included Melville regularly for 40 years, I only taught Moby Dick in its entirety once, but not because I've turned away from those writers now grouped together under the heading Dead White Males. Rather, Moby Dick is simply too much to include in a course, a whale of a book, and it doesn't benefit from being made a forced march. I did teach parts of it, including this episode's passage, so that students could have an idea of what Moby Dick is. Once, after this taste, four students, two female and two male, did come to me and ask if they could read the whole book with me. And the next semester we did, a little community of five. This passage from Moby Dick is different from other passages I've chosen for Dr. J's American Passages. My organizing principle for Dr. J's American Passages is choosing passages that are not only great literature, but that address the question put by Hector St. Jean de Crèvecoeur: What is the American? this new man. This passage doesn't speak to that question, but rather to aspects and experiences of humanity's shared life. Moby Dick is, nevertheless, I think, a very American book. I'll return to this at the end of the episode to ask if you agree. This passage needs little introduction. You all know the basic story even without having read the book. A man signs on for a whaling cruise and finds himself on a ship captained by a mad captain who seeks revenge on the white whale who took his leg. In this passage, there are three named characters. Pip, the captain's black cabin boy, Stub, the second mate who commands one of the small boats that row after the whales once they're spotted, and Tashtiegel, the harpooner of the whaleboat Stubb commands, a full-blood New England Indian. Pip is not a sailor, or even yet a man, but when one of Stubb's crew is injured and unable to row, Pip is pressed into service. The first time he lowers with Stubb, he manages to do all right, despite his nervousness and lack of experience. The second time, though, doesn't go well, and another time after that, even less well. Let's listen. Now, upon the first lowering, the boat paddled upon the whale, and as the fish received the darted iron, it gave its customary rap, which happened, in this instance, to be right under poor Pip's seat. The involuntary consternation of the moment Caused him to leap, paddle in hand, out of the boat, and in such a way that part of the slack whale line coming against his chest, he breasted it overboard with him, so as to become entangled in it, when at last plumping into the water. That instant the stricken whale started on a fierce run, the line swiftly straightened, and presto! Poor Pip came all foaming up to the chocks of the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line, which had taken several turns around his chest and neck. Tashtego stood on the bows. He was full of the fire of the hunt. He hated Pip, then, for a poltroon. Snatching the boat knife from its sheath, he suspended its large edge over the line and, turning towards Stubb, exclaimed interrogatively, Cut! Meantime, Pip's blue, choked face plainly looked, Do, for God's sake! All passed in a flash. In less than half a minute, the entire thing happened. Damn him, cut! roared Stubb. And so the whale was lost, and Pip was saved. So soon as he recovered himself... Pip was assailed by yells and execrations from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb then, in a plain, businesslike but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially, and that done, unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except. But all the rest was indefinite as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling, but cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving Pip too wide a margin to jump in the future, Stubbs suddenly dropped all advice "'and concluded with a peremptory command. "'Stick to the boat, Pip, "'or by the Lord I won't pick you up if you jump. "'Mind that. "'We can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you.' "'But we are all in the hands of the gods, "'and Pip jumped again. "'It was under very similar circumstances "'to the first performance, "'but this time he did not breast out the line.' And hence, when the whale started to run, Pip was left behind on the sea like a hurried traveller's trunk. Alas, Stubb was but too true to his word. It was a beautiful, bounteous blue day, the spangled sea calm and cool and flatly stretching away all round to the horizon. Bobbing up and down in that sea, Pip's ebon head showed like a head of cloves. No boat knife was lifted when he fell so rapidly astern. Stub's inexorable back was turned upon him, and the whale was winged. In three minutes, a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stub. Now, in calm weather, to swim in the open ocean is as easy to the practiced swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore. But the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity, my God, who can tell it? Mark how, when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides but had Stubb really abandoned Pip to his fate? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two boats in his wake, and he supposed, no doubt, that they would, of course, come up to Pip very quickly and pick him up. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase, and Stubb's boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish, that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him, but from that hour Pip went about the deck an idiot, such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, But drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps. Pip saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it and therefore his shipmates called him mad. In this passage, we find the two poles of Melville's remarkable craft. At one pole is his vivid presentation of and commentary on our everyday lives, and I mean our in the broadest sense. The derogatory phrase, dead white males, was already part of the talk when I was in graduate school 40 years ago. Is all this literature written by dead white males really relevant to readers who aren't white, or to readers who aren't male, or for that matter, to readers who aren't dead? In Melville's case, as in many, many others, the answer is absolutely yes. Stubb's advice to Pip is the advice I regularly give all of my students. Black, white, brown, Asian, male, female, other, rural, urban, well-off, not-so-well-off, Muslim, Jew, Christian, none. Always, always, always stick with the boat, except when leap from the boat is better. And remember, nobody's coming back to pick you up. Each student knows the times this advice applies to their own lives and knows as well the advice's deep irony and what that irony means for their lives. Deep takes us to the other pole of Melville's craft. He can shift instantly from the mundane world to the world beneath the surface. Interest here is just as keen. I ask my students, What does Melville mean when he writes that Pip saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it? All propose tentative answers. Whether raised religious or not, or in what religion, makes no difference, as all recognize that we aren't in the world of received religion, but something more primal does it matter, I ask, that Pip is black? Some say no, but more say yes, though they can't quite say why. Like his adolescence, it makes Pip's abandonment and loneliness more poignant. Moreover, it doesn't just make them feel more empathy for Pip, it makes them identify more with Pip. At some times, not only do we feel alone in this world, but also different, an outcast in a world of others. Similarly, at some times we all feel we would be thought mad if we spoke what we know about the deep world. The power of this passage comes from the unexpected identification of all readers with an unimportant black cabin boy abandoned in the wide sea. I rarely, if ever, heard anyone say they identified with either Stubb or Tashtigal. All know them, though, or would like to know them, and perhaps some day be them, adults with a sure place in the world. Neither Tashtigal nor Stubb is a villain, despite Pip being abandoned by them. This is another feature of Moby Dick that makes the time spent with it so refreshing. There are no villains not even the mad captain, though he's terribly wrong in leading all, or all but one, to their deaths. Nor is the great whale a villain, though it embodies a great power. I've emphasized in discussing this passage from Moby Dick the kind of dilemmas and experiences that readers will recognize, no matter the nationality or culture of the author and characters, or of the reader. We don't read world literature, and Moby Dick certainly has an important place in world literature, just to find out about other peoples and cultures, but to find out about ourselves and about our shared humanity. At the same time, I think this passage belongs in Dr. J's American Passages, and not simply because Moby Dick is written by an American, but because I think it could only be written by an American. Not just any American, to be sure, but only one American, but one whose mind and soul are American through and through, if also cosmopolitan. I'll leave you to read Moby Dick yourselves and decide whether or not this is true, and if it is, why. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.